how to respond to, to them. Let's uh, give him a hand. Uh, everybody on the, this side, smile for me and wave if you would like to. I meant to uh, make sure I remember you guys and <laughs> think of you in prayer and so on. Uh, it's an honour to be invited to come and uh, serve today by there we go talking about the new atheism. I have prepared far too much uh, material, so you'll see in the handouts that you have. Uh, my material is divided into two phases, as I'm calling it, two parts, and I will focus on going through the first part. I'm not going to rush so that I stuff lots of, of material in. I'm sure your, your brains are already overflowing with information at this time of the week anyway. Uh, so I'm going to concentrate on that first phase and leave time for questions. And if we find ourselves at a loose end, I might dip our toes into some of the material in phase two there. Uh, I'll draw your attention to uh, my book, A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism, uh, which uh, unfortunately didn't seem to uh, make it through the lines of the communication onto the book table here, uh, but it is available uh, online from Amazon and uh, directly from the Damaris Trust and uh, in Christian bookshops uh, around the place, hopefully. Um, very good. Thank you very much, Dr. Ray. The stuff that I'm going to talk to you about today, oops, there we go, is uh, most directly related to this paper that I just published recently in the UK uh, in the Journal of the Royal uh, Society for Philosophy called Think, an article of mine called The Emperor's Incoherent New Clothes Pointing the Finger at Dawkins' Atheism. You'll get the reference if you know the story about the, the Emperor's New Clothes, uh, an analogy that I use there. So, anyway... The incoherence of the new atheism. Uh, one of the things that I do in this paper and in most of, of my book is really uh, analysing very carefully what are the objections to religion in general, to Christian uh, theism in specific from the new atheism and giving a very careful internal critique uh, of their objections. And towards the end of the book, I get on to making something more of a positive case by interacting particularly with Richard Dawkins' attempt to undermine the arguments of natural theology. So I, I go on the sort of positive offence by the end, but a large part of what I, I do in, in handling the new atheism is trying to point out some of the uh, fundamental irrationalities uh, of uh, their assumptions behind their critique of Christianity. Uh, Michael Roos, not one of the new atheists, but an atheist philosopher from America, notes that since the turn of the millennium, a new militancy has uh, arisen among religious skeptics. Uh, you'll notice that term there, the term skeptic, particularly in America, is a term that the atheist community has kind of corralled for its own usage. Uh, things like uh, skeptic uh, 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 in, uh, groupings and so on, sceptical inquirer and things, uh, has almost become synonymous with being an atheist. And I, I wanted to kind of retrieve that word in the more original uh, Socratic kind of sense, uh, hence the title of my book, A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism. I'm someone who's sceptical about atheism. Uh, two can play that game. Uh, in Wired uh, magazine had a fascinating article on the new atheism. It was an article uh, by a guy called Gary Wolfe, and it was this article that kind of coined the, the term, the new atheism. We've got pictures up here of uh, Richard Dawkins from the UK, Sam Harris from America, Daniel Dennett, philosopher from America. And uh, Gary Wolfe says that the new atheists condemn not just belief in God, but respect for belief in God. Religion is not only wrong, not only an intellectually mistaken position, but evil. And it's that combination of claims, and particularly this pushing forward of the, the evils of religion, um, that really defines the new atheism, or neo-atheism as it's sometimes called, uh, from what we, I suppose, must now think of as the old atheism, or classical atheism, or something like that. Christopher Hitchens, uh, one of the new atheists, says this, I not only maintain 
that all religions are versions of the same untruth, but I hold that the influence of churches and the effect of religious belief is positively harmful. So the new atheists believe that at the core of even the most outwardly benign uh, uh, religious belief uh, is an immoral commitment to flouting one's intellectual responsibilities. That's the heart of their diagnosis of what they think is wrong with religion. It's, uh, religion is fundamentally committed to flouting our intellectual responsibilities. And once you're prepared to do that in order to be religious, then you're easy game for doing all sorts of terrible, harmful things in the name of God, in the name of religion. Daniel Dennett uh, puts it like this. Religion is the greatest threat to rationality and scientific progress. People are revered for their capacity to live in a dream world, to shield their minds from factual knowledge and to make major decisions in their lives by consulting voices in their heads. And they call uh, this uh, forth by rituals designed to intoxicate them. And they must have bigger communion cups at the churches in his area than at mine, I don't know. Um, <laughs> imperviousness to reason is, I think, he says, the property that we should most fear in religion. Imperviousness to reason is the property we should most fear in religion. Other institutions or traditions may encourage a certain amount of irrationality, but only religion demands it as a sacred duty. very important in this whole area to be clear about what we mean by faith as Christians and what the new atheists think we mean by faith as Christians. Uh, and I really hold that the, the two definitions do not overlap. Dawkins says, faith is blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. Victor J. Stenger says, faith is belief in the absence of supportive evidence and even in the light of contrary evidence. Uh, British philosopher Anthony Grayling, A.C. Grayling, is uh, the most hard line on this. He says, faith is a commitment to belief contrary to evidence and reason. Hence, Dawkins says that he does everything in his power to warn people against faith itself not just so-called extremist faith. When some people have accused them of, of you're, you're generalising from extremists and painting all religious people as extremists. Dawkins says, well, not all religious people are, are kind of you know, extremists or are going to go and do suicide bombings or, or whatever, but they all believe in faith. And that's the real nub of the issue. He says the teachings of moderate religion, though not extremist in themselves, are an open invitation to extremism. I'm always reminded when, when reading this of the, uh, the British comedian Eddie Izzard, who has this whole sketch about if the Church of England had been in charge of the Catholic Inquisition. Uh, and he does this whole sketch uh, 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 about a, a priest... Uh, interviewing people who are under inquisitorial suspicion. He goes along the line of people sort of offering them cake or death. Uh, and of course they all choose cake. And so he sort of has to give them cake because he's terribly nice. You know, Even the most terribly nice, more tea vicar kind of religious belief is an open door to the death of extremism. It seems to me that the new atheists are just fundamentally ignorant of uh, biblical perspectives on faith. Fundamentally ignorant of verses like uh, 1 Peter 3.15, the, the apologist's uh, memory verse. Always be prepared to give an answer, an apologia, an apology, a reasoned defense to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. I think a really good English translation of the word faith would be trust. I think we would avoid miscommunicating to people, particularly people who are picking up the new atheist definition of faith, 
if we talked to people in terms of trust. I trust God. I trust Jesus. That word is open to less misunderstanding in the culture. As C.S. Lewis put it, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. It's not an opposition between faith and reason, but between a reasonable faith, to nick the title of Bill Craig's excellent book, and uh, temptation, or your changing moods, or societal pressure, peer pressure, and so on, on the other hand. So not only are the new atheists wrong about faith, in that faith is not incompatible with reason, at least certainly not by definition, as they claim, but their purported defence of rationality, that's the kind of flag they want to raise, you know, come to us, we're the ones who are defending being rational, being reasonable. Their purported defence of rationality is profoundly anti-rational. Profoundly anti-rational. And I'm going to point out three ways in which their defence of rationality is self-contradictory. And it doesn't get worse than that in philosophy, advocating a view that's self-contradictory. So here's the first incoherence at the level of their epistemology, their theory of how we know stuff. Richard Dawkins says, next time somebody tells you that something's true, why not say to them, what kind of evidence is there for that? And it's pretty clear from the context of his writings and from the context of this quote, that what he means by evidence is scientific, empirical, sense data, measurable kind of evidence. And if they can't give you a good answer, he says, I hope you'll think very carefully before you believe a word they say. Where's that from? Uh, it's uh, from uh, his letter uh, to his daughter, uh, Julia. Um, and I think it's republished in uh, Devil's Chaplain, um, but you'll be able to find it on the web as well. It's an open letter to his daughter, Julia. Uh, we'll, of course, try applying that kind of epistemology to itself and see where we get. Sam Harris says that while believing strongly without evidence is considered a mark of madness or stupidity in any other area of our lives, faith in God still holds immense prestige in our society. How crazy is that? Of course, uh, doubting that the universe is more than five minutes old, if you came across someone who really doubted that the universe was more than five minutes old, who thought that it had just popped into existence five minutes ago, complete with every apparent sign of age, rings in trees and rusty cars and so on. That would be, surely, considered a mark of madness or stupidity by most people. But of course the belief that the universe is older than that rather than having been created five minutes ago with all of this apparent age, is something that must be accepted without evidence by its very nature. Because any evidence that you pointed to would of course be part of the problem. On this theory, you would simply say, yes, you can't point to the rings in the tree to show that the universe is older than five minutes old and this tree must have been growing for a number of years because, by hypothesis, all of those rings popped into existence five minutes ago. So it's impossible to disprove that hypothesis by looking at evidence. And yet, we don't consider it a mark of madness or irrationality to believe that the universe has been around for a pretty long time on any theory of origins. Indeed, the demand for everything to be justified, however it's justified, whether by evidence or some other method, but the demand that everything be justified, which clearly underlies the kind of epistemology put forward by new atheists, entails an infinite regress. And that infinite regress of, of demands for justification could never be satisfied. If you consistently applied the kind of epistemological advice that Richard Dawkins gives to his daughter, 
you would never believe anything. Second, incoherence. A self-contradictory anthropology, theory of, of what people are like. This is Dawkins talking about the mind-body problem issue. He says, human brains, though they may not work in the same way as man-made computers, are as surely governed by the laws of physics. When a computer malfunctions, we do not punish it. We track down the problem and we fix it, usually by replacing a damaged component, either in hardware or software. Remember, he's drawing an analogy here with, with people. Actually, more an analogy. He's saying we might not work in exactly the same way, but fundamentally, we're the same kind of thing. People are the kind of thing whose behavior, including their mind, their thinking, is determined, governed by the laws of physics. And it doesn't make sense to punish a computer when it doesn't work properly. It doesn't make sense to punish a person when they don't behave properly. He asks, why do we vent such visceral hatred on child murderers or on thuggish vandals when we should, interesting use of terminology here, should simply regard them as faulty units that need fixing or replacing? So he said similar kind of comments in two or three uh, different places. Uh, this is from uh, the Edge Foundation website. I have a question, a rhetorical question and an answer on this issue of free will and rationality. Question, if everything about a person is, quote, governed by the laws of physics, blaming them for their intellectual failings surely makes as much sense as Newton blaming gravity for giving him an apple-sized bump on the head. So how can anyone, for example, a Christian, be responsible for not living up to their intellectual obligations if they aren't free to be responsible for anything in the first place? seems to me that the pretty obvious answer to that is that they can't. And yet the new atheists want to raise the flag for religion is evil because it's all about not living up to your intellectual responsibilities. Come to us, we'll help you to live up to your intellectual responsibilities and obligations. But our side has a theory of human nature that rules out doing that at all. Third, incoherence. A self-contradictory ethic. Dawkins uh, argues that Darwinism, as a scientific theory, doesn't justify social Darwinism. Uh, and he says this because, and I've, I've uh, interjected in brackets here um, some comments. He says there's no logical connection between what is and what ought. He's drawing a, a, a classic fact-value distinction, a distinction upon which I say a pox, because it, uh, of course, illegitimately assumes that values are not facts. But anyway, he draws that distinction, and he says, if somebody used my views, his meta-ethic, to justify a completely self-centered lifestyle at the level of applied ethics, uh, a lifestyle which involved trampling all over other people in any way they chose. We kind of lived by survival of the fittest, in other words. He admits, I would be fairly hard put to it to argue on purely intellectual grounds with the person who did that. I couldn't ultimately argue intellectually against somebody who did something I found obnoxious. I think I could finally only say, well, in this society... You can't get away with it and call the police. So note that the start of his argument is, don't worry that Darwinism is about survival of the fittest because that doesn't imply that we have to live ethically that way. But by the end of his discussion, he's reduced morality down to, well, you can't get away with that because I'm stronger than you are. Which is 
the law of the jungle that he was trying to avoid, isn't it? <laughs> Might equals right, in other words. Naturalism, I would agree with him in this, naturalism doesn't justify, doesn't morally justify a self-centered lifestyle. But that is because it doesn't justify any type of lifestyle. That's what Dawkins fails to see. The non only does Darwinism or, or uh, naturalism, and that's the, the, the key thing here, not justify being self-centered, neither does it justify being loving. It doesn't justify anything. Fascinating discussion on this uh, that took place between the English journalist from uh, Premier Christian Radio, Justin Briley, with Dawkins. I grabbed a quick conversation with uh, Dawkins after a debate that Dawkins had with uh, Christian mathematician and uh, philosopher of science John Lennox in the Natural History Museum in Oxford. And uh, Briley asks uh, Dawkins, when you, when you make a value judgment, don't you immediately step yourself outside of this, this evolutionary process and say that the reason this is good is that it's good, not that it's useful or conducive to spreading my genes or whatever. And don't you, don't, you don't have any way to, to stand on that statement to justify it, I guess he means. Well, here's Dawkins' fascinating response. He says, my value judgment itself uh, could come from my evolutionary past. Well, the fact that I feel that a certain behaviour is abhorrent or that I've been kind of ingrained with a certain taboo uh, and so on. Briley keeps plugging away. He says, so, so therefore it, it's just as random in a sense as, as any product of evolution. Richard Dawkins says, you could say that. It, it doesn't in any case, nothing about it makes it more probable that there's anything supernatural. Dawkins is seeing where this question is going. I want to head off the moral argument for God, Dawkins is thinking. But Briley keeps plugging away. Uh, he says, ultimately, your belief that rape is wrong is as arbitrary as the fact that we've evolved five fingers rather than six. And Dawkins says, you could say that, yeah. So, uh, this is his uh, little paper, God's Utility Function. Uh, Dawkins says, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose. I.e., he's saying, if there's no God. That is, as I've highlighted here, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Dawkins is saying, the implication of my worldview belief that there is no God is that there is no such thing as good and no such thing as evil. All there is is blind, pitiless indifference. Unthinking, non-teleological stuff happens. And uh, in a book published uh, from the Edge Centre, he says there's a non-overlapping and exhaustive distinction between ideas that are false or true about the real world. It's fascinating. What does Dawkins mean by the real world? Well, he puts in brackets here, factual matters in the broad sense. What does he mean? And ideas about what we ought to do. Okay, at least he's... he's is defining by, by a negative here. Ideas about what we ought to do don't count as being things about the real world or facts. Fact, value, distinction. Normative or moral ideas, says Dawkins, for which the words true and false have no meaning. Uh, I mean, this is back to sort of A.J. Eyre logical positivism of the 1930s and so on. Really? This means nothing to me? Quote from Dawkins, Hitler and Stalin were, by any standards, spectacularly evil men, says Dawkins. But of course, what you've got to remember is that he doesn't mean anything by that. Faith is an evil, precisely because it requires no justification and brooks no argument. Well, not only is that definitionally wrong, but... You do have to remember that, of course, when he says this, with however much passion he says it, he says, come to me, I will help you defend rationality against these evil religious people. He doesn't mean it. 
So the new atheist meta-ethic seems to me to boil down to this. First point. Uh, we have an objective moral obligation to oppose religion because religion is an objectively bad thing. In that, crucially, it encourages people to ignore their intellectual moral obligations. Uh, and of course, second point, you must remember that there are no objective moral values. <laughs> the laughter says it all, doesn't it? So here's my rhetorical question and answer again. Um, question, how could anyone feel an intellectual obligation to agree with a worldview that denies any reality to intellectual obligations? How could anyone sensibly feel an obligation to agree with a worldview that denies any reality to obligations? intellectual and otherwise. Seems to me that the pretty obvious answer here is they can't. So that's my first phase and I'll stop there, pause there for a question and answer and then we might just dip our toe into looking at some of the, the ways in which Richard Dawkins completely uh, mishandles natural theological arguments uh, in The God Delusion, but we'll, we'll pause there. What's our, our timing doing? Just remind me when I'm stopping. You still have 35 minutes. Still have 35 minutes. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get into a little bit of the, the other stuff. But let's have any reflections, comments, questions on the material we've covered so far. Okay. Um, has Dawkins himself ever commented on this kind of blatant incoherence that you're showing here and... and uh, I guess he's not unaware of this, this form of criticism. It's, mm. Seeing it this way, it's, it's very embarrassing. Yeah. Has he ever responded to it? Um, the question, thank you very much for the reminder, the question here is, has Dawkins ever responded uh, to this uh, characterization of his views as being self-contradictory in these ways? Um, not formally. I, I know of some uh, sort of discussions from his book tour, of the God Delusion tour, where people have asked him kind of questions along the similar line, or he's been in some radio debates, and this sort of issue has come up. And um, basically, as, as far as I read the situation, he's kind of fudged it. Uh, does that expression carry across? Could have been rather, rather vague uh, about it and kind of changed topics as quickly as, to as possible. Um, uh, or, or sort of take refuge in saying, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm not really a, a philosopher or, or something like that. Um, well, you know, if you're giving philosophical views in public, you have to be prepared for them to be critiqued in, in public and to defend them in public. Um, so uh, I don't, uh, you know, I wouldn't like to psychoanalyze the, the man, whether he realizes that there's a contradiction here that he's kind of squirming with or whether he just simply doesn't realize that there's a, a contradiction there. I'll leave it to you to decide which, which view the principle of charity would encourage us to adopt. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, one thing I often find uh, talking in debating with atheists is that um, when it comes to morality, if you're, if you're uh, trying to present a case for uh, theism um, being a found, uh, rational foundation for objective morality, whereas naturalism is not, mm. um, you almost invariably get into Euthyphro's dilemma and then um, yep. you know so so basically okay well maybe maybe naturalism doesn't give an objective foundation for morality but neither does theism so how, how do you deal with that argument? Okay, the question here is, if you start bringing up the, the, what's basically the moral argument for the existence of God, saying that naturalism doesn't do a good job of explaining or grounding objective values, but that theism does, and that's a reason to prefer theism over naturalism, the issue of what's called the Euphitio uh, dilemma from Plato's uh, dialogues comes up, and how do I deal with that dilemma? Um, so I better sketch out what the dilemma is, and then sketch out how I would deal with it. Um, uh, in the context of Plato, he's talking about the gods, of course, and he asks the question, um, is what the, uh, the gods uh, tell us to do and approve of, is it good because the gods tell us to behave in a certain way, 
Or do the gods tell us to behave in a certain way, approve of certain ways of behaving, because those ways of behaving are good? And in the first place, doesn't that make uh, morality just dependent on sort of a power move or relative to that particular uh, individual god or just sort of uh, arbitrary because, you know, if that god had decided to command something else, something contradictory to what he did in fact command, then that contradictory thing would have been good because it's the god, the fact that the god is commanding it that makes it good. On the other hand, if the gods approve or command things because they are good, then doesn't that make the good independent of the gods and therefore bringing up the topic of gods irrelevant to talking about how we explain morality okay? that's the, the horns of the dilemma uh, I think that the way to, way to deal with that dilemma is to split straight through the horns of the dilemma and say uh, in the context of talking about one god, God uh, of course things are not good because God commands them morality is not arbitrary but neither is the good independent of God. It is independent of the fact that God commands it, but there is more to God than his commanding. There is his character, his nature, on the basis of which, out of which, he makes certain commands and, upon us. So that the good is to be identified with the, the necessary character of God, and uh, perhaps you would mention his commanding of certain things when you were talking about how we know that something is right and wrong. But the, the meta issue of, of what is right and wrong would say, well, it's defined in relation to the character of God. So that, I think, completely avoids the horns of the dilemma. Uh, chap at the back there, yes. So now you're the philosopher, I'm not. Yeah. Because if you're saying, therefore, the goodness is intrinsic to the character, nevertheless, we only know that's good because the character is revealed. So it does sound a little bit like that. He says so, he is, and he says so. And there is a scratch for us. Okay, the... the, the, the uh, uh, comeback uh, suggestion here is uh, if we only know what is right and wrong because God tells us uh, doesn't this uh, make the claim that um, well that's okay because it's the character of God that is actually grounding these things avoiding the horns of the dilemma don't we, don't we still have the problem because our only justification for saying that the character of God is good is that God has revealed itself to us so it's kind of I guess you'll point towards isn't it a bit like a kind of circular argument in a sense yeah have I I've characterised the, the question correctly. Um, that's a very interesting question. I, I think I might have to think about that one a little more to, to give a definite, uh, definitive response. Um, but off the top of my head, I would say, um, if it is circular, it's not viciously uh, circular. Um, I think there's actually quite a good uh, exchange on this very question between uh, J.P. Morland and Kyle Nielsen in uh, their debate, Does God Exist?, published by Prometheus Press. And I'm struggling to recall the details of Morland's reply, which, which fully satisfied me on that instance. But uh, this early in the morning, my, my brain is, is not really working. But um, uh, I, you could characterize it as, as, a, as, a, as a basic belief um, and separate the issues of, of how you know from what, what is... Um, and I think that, that distinction does cut the horns of the Uffizio dilemma as well, and I think there are good replies uh, to that kind of secondary issue, as it were. Uh, C.S. Lewis deals with this question in uh, Reflections on the Psalms. He does a great job, and it comes up again with Ben Scotus and Arkham later. Mm. Ah, it, it yes. Yes. Um, it, uh, mention of, of C.S. Lewis dealing with this issue in uh, Reflections on Psalms, you say, and so on, and uh, I, I, that does jog my memory. Um, his kind of reply is that you, you, you have to trust the trustworthiness of the source of your moral uh, beliefs, your moral knowledge, uh, because if you held the belief that the source of your moral knowledge was untrustworthy, then you couldn't characterize your moral knowledge as moral knowledge, because an untrustworthy source could be deceiving you. Um, so you're faced then with a, a dilemma between claiming that you have moral knowledge um, 
and accepting that the source must therefore be good, um, as Plato would have put it, or abandoning that, and you know, do you really want to pay the price of not being able to say torturing children for fun is wrong? Um, so yes, thank you for jogging my memory on, on that reply. Uh, I'll take uh, w- one more from this side, and then we'll come back to this side. If well, just a compliment on, on this, uh, uh, the, one also of the pretty uh, criteria is what is is, you know, and, and Heidegger is helping us in, in, in this. You know, what is, this is good. What is is, and, mm. and then you you have to go back to ontology because yeah. this is a pretty big statement to, to put the the. the the, the predicate is, you know, and uh, the verb form is what is is, and 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 here you're uncovering a whole other layer in terms of ontology, and you can go even deeper than this. Yeah. Okay. So the, just a comment talking about Heidegger's uh, discussion of what we mean by is uh, chimes very much in with what I was saying about P- Plato saying that the form of the good is the good. Um, and of course uh, there's been a tradition in Christian thinking of, of identifying the form of the good from Plato with the character of God and it's not that God is in line with this independently existing definition or, or character but is himself constitutive of the good yeah um, so yeah I think that in addition to that as well it's very much related I mm. think the pushback assumes that God is a contingent and not a piece of furniture in the universe so mm. that makes it kind of arbitrary, arbitrary to mm. say, oh, but is God character good? Because according to some independent statement or whatever, but mm. God as a necessary being, um, you can't get behind him to or independent of him because he defines reality by who he is. Yeah. So you can't, there is not a possible world in which God is evil, to put it that way. Yes. Yeah, yeah, you'd have to explain that out. Um, yeah, I, again, another very helpful comment talking about our, the ontology of God's existence not being contingent but being necessary. There is no possible world uh, in which God is evil. He is good, constitutive of the good in all possible worlds. So once you, you grasp that definition, that understanding of, of what we mean by God, it doesn't really make sense to raise questions about further uh, criteria or arbitrariness at all in, in the goodness of God. Yeah. Well, uh, another point with the dilemma is you don't have to, the only thing you have to do to sort of split the horns is to show a possible solution. So yeah. if, if I say, well, good could be founded in God's character, and he says, well, how would you know independently of, of, God's, mm. of God's command? I could say, mm. well, I'm not sure this is the true alternative, but this shows that there are more than the, these two yeah. points of the dilemma. Very cunning. Um, gentleman very uh, cunningly uh, takes an approach a bit like um, Alvin Plantinga's free will defence um, in, in theodicy uh, in, in saying in order to split the horns of, of this particular dilemma that we're talking about you don't actually need to advocate a third alternative as being, being true as long as you can advocate it as, as being possibly true uh, uh, which is of course a, a less strong um, case to have to defend so um, we can defend uh, even defending the, the weaker claim that well there's a possible third way of dealing with that issue uh, would diffuse uh, the argument uh. yes I have a question is it possible to hear your face too? Hmm. <laughs> that is an excellent question sir how long have we got? what, what shall I jump into? 20, 20 minutes 20 minutes um, I've got stuff on uh, Dawkins' interaction with religious experience argument, uh, cosmological argument, quite a lot on his interaction with the the anthropic design argument and his so-called unrebuttable rebuttal to the existence of God, um, which is quite a big thing. So I I could jump to the end and deal with kind of Dawkins, the design and the unrebuttable rebuttal. Take the most spectacular Take the most spectacular smashes. Well, uh, let me begin with religious experience. Then let me just sketch out a very sketchy kind of how might an argument from religious experience go? Uh, because uh, interestingly enough, this is not something that Richard Dawkins actually bothers to do when looking at the argument from religious experience. He just kind of says people will argue from religious experience. Now let me take that apart. Um, I think good methodology would require one to actually try and think what might be a good way of putting the argument that you're criticising. This seems to me to be a good kind of initial way of sketching it out at least. Um, It seems to me that I have experienced God, says someone. A second claim, uh, we should trust our experience 
unless given sufficient reason for doubt. This is an application, uh, you'll note, of Richard Swinburne's principle of credulity uh, kind of argument uh, that he makes in uh, his book, The Case, uh, Good Book on God. Uh, and you'd have to conjoin that, of course, with the subclause that, and I do have insufficient reason to doubt my experience in this particular case. Um, conclusion that follows, therefore, God exists. Or at least, therefore, it's, it's uh, warranted of me to believe in God, um, at least until such time as someone actually does a decent job of undermining um, this uh, warrant that I have from my experience. So it seems to at least kind of be an argument that kind of put, puts the ball into the atheist's court. Dawkins, uh, in reply to the kind of religious experience argument, notes that experiences can be delusional. I certainly agree with him here. Experiences can be delusional. He says the brain simulation software, the way in which we kind of piece together our view of reality uh, from our senses kind of in here, is well capable of constructing visions and visitations of the, the, the Holy Virgin Mary and so on, uh, of the utmost vertical power, really convincing to the person who has them. Um, let's grant him this. Yeah, fine. That's all, folks. No, really, he says, uh, this is really all that needs to be said about personal experiences of uh, gods or other religious phenomena. If you've had such an experience, you may well find yourself believing firmly that it was real. But don't expect the rest of us to take your word for it, especially if we have the slightest familiarity with the brain and its powerful workings. Right. He is a master rhetorician, by the way, not a rhetorician to be imitated uh, particularly, but he is a master rhetorician. I mean, the obvious uh, implicit argument here is, of course, any uh, religious person who uh, trusts their religious experience uh, couldn't possibly be a neurologist or a brain surgeon or uh, anyone like that. Uh, because, you know, do you know any brain surgeons who are Christians? You know. um, Dawkins' rebuttal rebuttal, a bit of a strong term here, attempted rebuttal, doesn't even rise to the level of an argument, formally speaking, uh, because it fails to advance more than one premise. <coughs> he's only got one premise. What he's uh, done is he's observed that the brain can create illusions, but of course making that observation uh, does uh, absolutely nothing to show that all experiences, certainly not all religious experiences, are Delusions, which is kind of what he's trying to get to. Here's what he's given us. Premise one, the brain can deceive us. Premise two, conclusion, therefore, all our religious experiences are deceptive. <laughs> um, and actually, if you try to, try to kind of help out and develop his argument, think, well, how might I kind of charitably develop what he's arguing here? Um, it becomes uh, in danger of self-contradiction as, as well. Uh, because you think, well, I need some kind of criteria that would limit uh, all delusory uh, experience, uh, limit this delusion to the category of religious experiences uh, without threatening um, the experiences on which I base the argument. Because he's, of course, basing the argument on experience, experience of our knowledge of how brains work and that people can be deluded and so on. Uh, and he wants to go from the mere fact that people can have delusions to ruling out all religious experience as not being vertical. But how would he do that without putting in jeopardy, jeopardy non-religious experiences that he needs for the first premise of his argument? Um, it seems at least a, a, a tough uh, ask to me, uh, and one that he doesn't even sort of realise needs, needs doing. Uh, Cosmological argument. Again, very rough sketch here. Uh, he talks about Thomas Aquinas' arguments at some lengths. Um, if we argued, look, something is caused, it's impossible for everything to be caused. I mean, what, after all, outside of everything would there be to do any of the causing that you'd need? Conclusion, therefore, there must be an uncaused cause. And then uh, delightful Thomas Aquinas kind of makes a bit of a leap and says, and that's what everybody means by God. There's obviously some kind of more work brushed under the carpet there, but he was writing uh, an introductory textbook after all. Um, A.C. Grayling, I've mentioned him before, he says, it's a bit kind of patronising tone comes through here, he says, theists 
need to believe in supernatural agencies because they cannot otherwise understand how there can be a natural world. As if invoking chaos and old night. In one Middle Eastern mythology, the, the progenitors of all things explained anything, let alone the universe's existence. Doing so might satisfy a, a pathological metaphysical need for what Paul Davis uh, calls the self-levitating super-turtle. But it's obviously enough not worth discussing. Gracious me. Well, <clears throat> let's make, uh, start with a concession. It's always good to find some common ground. Uh, I admit that I cannot, besides a belief in a God, understand how there can be a natural material world. However, I do not admit that this is due to some uh, peculiar failure of imagination on my part, or on the part of the majority of people who believe in a God. The question here is whether anyone, not just religious people, whether anyone can understand how there can be a natural world without a supernatural cause. And cosmological arguments, as the, the name kind of suggests here, uh, argue that they cannot. And dismissing the whole subject as not worth discussing, not worth arguing about, really does seem a bit, bit evasive. Uh, Dawkins says the famous five ways of Thomas Aquinas are easily, though I hesitate to say so, given his eminence, exposed as vacuous. Really should have hesitated a bit longer. Um, Dawkins criticises Aquinas for making the entirely unwarranted assumption that God himself is immune to the regress. A cosmological argument just is an argument for the necessity of there being a being that is immune to the regress. Doesn't seem to have even grasped the, the structure of the argument. Uh, I'm going to jump through the moral argument and the ontological argument. We might possibly come back to them uh, because I think it would be really good to look at the fine-tuning argument uh, you know the kind of thing. If we had a big machine um, that could produce universes and we gave it one dial for every law of nature we wanted to give it, and we tuned the dials, it could be you know, a stronger or a weaker force of gravity or whatever, and we tuned the machine to represent the way that our universe is. And we took just one of those dials, say the gravity, and we, we changed the dialing on there by just a very small percentage and then we press the create a universe button. Wouldn't this be fantastic? Uh, press the create universe button and see what came out. Well, kind of running the numbers, uh, so the scientists tell us, uh, what you would end up with is a dull, lifeless, uninteresting cosmos in which there was nothing uh, that rose to the level of atoms, perhaps. Uh, certainly not uh, chemistry or, or organic chemistry or, or life. Um, and people have kind of observed, well, that is a bit suspicious. It looks a bit like a put-up job, as if a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics, as uh, atheist Fred Hoyle complained when he discovered the carbon resonance. Um, if we had an argument that went, the laws of nature are finely tuned, uh, exhibiting specified complexity to bring in a sort of ID criterion, or you could just use a principle of credulity argument here, uh, that would lead you to think the best explanation of, of things that have that kind of complexity or the things that look designed, they probably are, then you get to the conclusion that there probably actually is design there. I'm going to skip through an explanation of specified complexity. If you want the explanation, you'll have to get the recording of the other lecture I gave on ID the other day. Haha. <laughs> um, Dawkins says the anthropic principle is an alternative to the design hypothesis. It provides a rational, design-free explanation. It almost seems he thinks that those are synonymous. Design-free explanation for the fact that we find ourselves in a situation propitious to our existence, suitable for our existence. What the religious mind fails to grasp is that two candidate solutions are offered to the problem. God is one. 
The anthropic principle is the other. And they are alternatives. Dawkins is demonstrably wrong about this. Uh, and I can demonstrate that um, from Dawkins himself. Um, the problem, the, the explanatory conundrum here that needs to be solved is not, as he puts it, the fact that we live in a life-friendly place. As Dawkins says, uh, we couldn't exist in a life-unfriendly place. Rather, the explanatory conundrum here is the unlikely fact that a life-friendly place exists. And those are two very different uh, propositions. Dawkins knows this. He contradicts his claim that the anthropic principle is an explanation of the fine-tuning. Actually, in the literature, it's just another way of referring to the fine-tuning. The anthropic principle is the observation that we live in a finely tuned universe. And he references uh, philosopher John Leslie's analogy of the man before the firing squad. Sentenced to death. You know, the firing squad come out, they all line up with their guns, they take aim, the commandant sort of says, take aim, fire! Bang, 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 bang! Bullets whiz past the poor blindfolded chap, hit the wall, brick dust covering him. Stillness descends, and the blindfolded man kind of goes, I'm still alive. Gosh, I mean, was, was this some sort of massive practical joke? Was this a set-up job? Did someone bribe the guards? The commandant says, oh no, look, there's, there's nothing to be amazed at here. There's nothing to explain. After all, if you'd been hit, you wouldn't be alive to be asking any of these questions. So there's nothing to explain. And Dawkins, along with uh, Leslie, says, well, obviously, they all missed, or I wouldn't be thinking about it. That doesn't mean that there's nothing to explain. He says, the man, the blindfolded man, he could still forgivably wonder why they'd all missed and toy with the hypothesis that they were bribed or whatever, that design was a really good explanation for why he was still alive. Let me put it uh, like this. Noting that the sentenced man wouldn't exist now if the firing squad hadn't missed doesn't explain why they missed. Okay? By analogy, noting that life wouldn't exist now if the universe hadn't exhibited certain laws and tunings of them doesn't explain why it has those laws. So Dawkins admits that there is something surprising to be explained here. And then he says the objection can be answered by the suggestion that there are many universes. So he's now given up on anthropic principle as an al that's the alternative. No, actually the alternative is many universes. Uh, skip over there. So the reason religious apologists love the anthropic principle is not, as he thinks, some reason that makes no sense at all. Uh, but that you might very well think, well, given the alternatives of one designed universe and multiple universes, you could favour a single designer hypothesis. Um, he's really arguing this. If there were many universes, then the fine-tuning of the universe uh, wouldn't justify a design inference. He wants to get to the conclusion that, therefore, you don't have a justified design inference the missing premise here is that there are many universes. And you might want to ask the question, well, why think that? Actually, don't we need an independent reason for thinking that? <laughs> if X number of chimps existed with enough typewriters, then they could type the works of Shakespeare by chance. Let's grant that. Uh, but anyone faced with the many chimps hypothesis... Uh, for the works of William Shakespeare is going to ask whether there's any independent reason to think that X number of chimps actually exists before they give up the William Shakespeare hypothesis. And shouldn't something analogous apply here? Uh, skip over there. So, give me a timer just to remind me. How can I do this? Five minutes, okay. Let's see if I can squeeze in Dawkins' 
unrebuttable objection to God. This is it. This is the big one. This is the big gun that's going to kill off God. Okay, here we go. This is the doozy. The designer hypothesis immediately raises the larger problem of who designed the designer. Note the analogy with his objection to the cosmological argument, who caused the uncaused causer. Think through that one. Uh, the whole problem we started out with was the problem of explaining the statistical improbability of this fine-tuning. It is obviously, obviously, no solution to postulate something even more improbable, like many universes, you might be thinking. Um, two overlapping objections, actually, I think, in here, which I'll disambiguate for us. The first objection that he makes, sometimes he kind of interprets that this way, the who designed the designer? Objection. Who made God? The other one is the objection that you can't sensibly explain something with reference to something more complicated than the thing you're explaining. Uh, William Lane Craig nails this, I think, when he says, in order for an explanation to be the best explanation, one needn't have an explanation of the explanation. What actually would result if you had a rule that said in order to explain something, you have to have an explanation of the explanation? You'd generate an infinite regress of explanations that could never be satisfied. Explaining anything would become impossible. Dawkins' objection to the fine-tuning argument here is also an objection to science. It's quite an odd objection for the guy who was the professor for the public understanding of science at Oxford University to make, I think. On the who designed the designer question, well, that, that objection would apply to all design inferences. But lots of sciences depend on making design inferences. Just think of forensic science. You know, was he pushed or was it an accident? Or archaeology, is it an arrowhead or is it a bit of stone that's just been chipped in the waves on the shore? As Alvin Plantinga puts it, suppose we land on an alien planet and we discover a machine-like objects that look and work just like tractors. Let you into a secret that is actually a picture of a tractor. Uh, a first-year philosophy student on our expedition objects, hey, hold on a minute, you've explained nothing at all. Any intelligent life that designed those tractors would have to be at least as complex as they are. No doubt we tell him that a little learning is a dangerous thing and advise him to take the next rocket ship home and enrol on another philosophy course or two. Is it legitimate to explain this lovely uh, artist portrait by Jan Vermeer with reference to Jan Vermeer? I hope the answer to that is obvious. Of course it is. Is Jan Vermeer a lot more complicated than this painting? Again, the answer seems pretty obvious. So Dawkins begs the question by simply assuming that God would have to be highly improbable, he says, in the very same statistical sense as the entities he's supposed to explain. No, that is incorrect. Uh, as atheist Thomas Nagel wrote in his review of the God delusion, God, whatever he may be, is not a complex physical inhabitant of the natural world. If there's a God, he's a necessary being a spiritual being, not composed of uh, dissemblable parts in some sort of complex arrangement. Dawkins confuses having a large number of metaphysically distinguishable parts, such as uh, all the items of God's knowledge in his omniscience, say. He confuses that with exhibiting specified complexity in this argument. But that kind of complexity requires contingency, by definition, something has to be an unlikely fact, a contingent fact. But when we're talking about God, we're hypothesizing a non-contingent fact. So, asking who made God is like asking, why do squares have four sides? It's just kind of tied up in the definition here. God means the uncaused cause, an unmade maker, an undesigned designer. Uh, something that you can also support from the cosmological and I would also say ontological arguments. Uh, so we get uh, an absent rebuttal to the religious experience argument, uh, a rebuttal that commits the straw man to the cosmological argument, 
on the design argument. His re- rebuttals are question-begging, self-contradictory, uh, and he uh, really doesn't do very well with the other stuff as well. Um, but if you want to see uh, more on that, you'll have to buy the book. How about that for a plug? Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.